Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, new media and video editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, associate editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Journal Club Global, sponsored by Fertility and Sterility. I'm Kurt Barnhart, the media editor, uh, and it is my privilege to be on another Journal Club Global with you with my international experts. Good morning, good evening, or good afternoon, depending where you are in the world, for this Journal Club that's meant to be uh, lunchtime in the United States and dinnertime in Europe. Uh, it'll be co-sponsored today by Dominic De Ziegler, who will be joining me in introducing um, our illustrious panelists as well. We have uh, a very important and um, interesting journal article to describe, Recurrent Implantation Failure in Art, uh, Myth and Reality is the Topic, uh, and we have the authors and some internationally renowned discussants to um, enlighten you all. So again, welcome, and Dominic, uh, please take over and uh, tell us what we have in store for us today. Thank you, Kurt. It's really a pleasure uh, for me to participate in this uh, European, US, and worldwide uh, journal club. Uh, we indeed have a fantastic topic to discuss, and it will be certainly the source of many discussions and many uh, questions. Uh, this actually is a study conducted by Paul Ketea, who is going to describe the details of that but it was inspired by uh, Richard Scott, who actually uh, is uh, the director of the lab and clinical director at RMA New Jersey. He also has uh, a variety of different uh, distinctions and he's known to all of us in the field. Uh, before having uh, Paul describe the study, I thought it was uh, interesting to actually hear uh, the background that led uh, Richard to actually uh, study and design this study. Richard? Um, thank you, Dom. Um, recurrent implantation failure has been a problem that we all have probably uh, dealt with in some way uh, in our patients and, and within our programs uh, for a long time. People have talked about it since the uh, really inception of IVF, certainly in the 1980s. Uh, but of course, in the 1980s, implantation rates uh, in Norfolk, when I was a fellow there, were four and a half percent. And so uh, everything was recurrent implantation failure. The best we ever did was recurrent implantation failure. Um, and so over time, things have improved, of course. Uh, and uh, with those uh, enhanced outcomes, thank goodness, uh, there still have been uh, uh, confusing outcomes. Uh, we had normal appearing embryos and uh, normal appearing endometria, and we put embryos back and we still didn't get babies and sometimes over and over. And so that led to many questions about RIF. If you go to the, the literature, you'll find that there is no consistent definition. Some of it depends on what generation uh, the work was done in. Um, there have been papers in the 90s saying you need 12 embryos, a variety saying you need many transfers, some saying you need as many as a few as four embryos. But the reality is, uh, none took into account really optimizing uh, the embryo or really optimizing embryonic endometrial synchrony. And so uh, we had many questions about 
uh, recurrent implantation failure patients and many of the diagnostics that have been proposed. And so Paul Pertea um, led a, a significant effort to uh, try to come to uh, identify a group of patients that we might study in many different ways. The problem was, how would we define it? And, and ultimately, we said to ourselves, if you take a group of patients, a large group of patients, and 60% get pregnant the first time, you do another transfer and 60% get pregnant, that's really, one wouldn't be a good enough definition for a current implantation failure because you do the transfer again and, and it stayed the same. Same from two to three, three to four, and so on. And so we were looking for a place where the outcomes uh, would, would diminish to, to say that that residual group would be enriched with people with genuine recurrent implantation failure group to study. And so with that sort of philosophy and with that need to not only sponsor this study, but to provide opportunity for many studies, uh, Paul Pertea began, to, uh, began this project, which I think has been fascinating. Paul? Uh, let me just introduce Paul for a couple of uh, seconds. Paul is a uh, talented uh, doctor who actually, uh, I did only one thing good for him, uh, advised that he does a research fellowship at Richard's Place. And now he's back with us in Paris. And Paul is going to talk about the study he conducted uh, while uh, being at New Jersey uh, RMA. Paul. So, uh, okay. My name is Paul Pitea, and I'm I, honestly I'm very happy and thrilled to be here today and uh, to have this opportunity to share with you the work that I have done in uh, Richard Scott's team in New Jersey. So today I'm going to talk about the with you the issue of recurrent implantation failure, and I know it's not a simple one, and I know everyone uh, can wait to talk about it. And uh, if you agree, I can start doing the presentation, or we do the introduction of the discussion. Present, present your, your work and, uh, okay, and the discussion perfect. will come by itself. Perfect. So can you see my screen now? Yes. Perfect. So uh, this topic that we are talking today, the recurrent implementation failure, uh, have inspired lots of discussions and including also the development of several tests. So um, just one moment because it doesn't work. Uh, so recurrent implantation failure uh, has been uh, a definition has a definition that is fully debated even now, and today the most commonly this applies to the failure of three or more ember transfer or the failure of a total of four blastocysts. So when implantation failures occur repeatedly, this provides recurrent implantation failure. So potential causes, yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. So the uh, potential causes for uh, recurrent failure in a morphological normal uterus result from factors that either affect embryo competence or endometrial function. So numerous authors have claimed that functional alteration of the normal endometrium in otherwise morphological uh, uterus can hamper the capacity of embryos to implant. So the range of functional alteration proposed for explaining implantation failures include window of, of endometrial receptivity, it's in the timing of progesterone-driven endometrial changes and the embryo development, leading to a misalignment of the elective period of window implantation and the receptivity. Endometriosis associates endometrial impairment of receptivity and also immunological problems. Uh, so, so far, what we know is that live births uh, with frozen euploid embryos 
given data which are provided by uh, big groups and big studies are ranging between 43 and 77%. So as we can clearly see, not all embryos implant. Even though PGTA allows for the transfer of chromosomally normal lipid embryos, even though it excludes those embryos with genetic abnormalities then prone to neither not implant or miscarriage, and even so, you can see that uh, the results are not 100%. So this has led to theories that um, implantation failures following transfers of euclid embryos might result from functional endometrial factors that could at times be persistent and cause recurrent implantation failure. So this is the whole point of our study. And our objective was to determine the true prevalence of recurrent implantation failure in women undergoing three successive frozen euploid single embryo transfers in normal morphological uterus from one or several ART uh, cycles. So for this, uh, as uh, I had the chance to work with Dr. Scott, we provided a retrospective core study from 2006-2018 in, uh, in RMA, New Jersey. We have benefited from PGTA platform that were validated with qPCR and NGH-based. And we transferred only frozen single euploid embryo transfer. So we really tried to, to, to limit and to provide that um, aligned uterus and correct embryo to see whether uh, this um, recurrent implantation failure can be defined. So we excluded all uh, donor egg cycles, all gestational carriers. We excluded, excluded all indication for monogenetic diseases, all mosaics and segmental uh, abnormalities. And we have excluded all patients with an endometrial thickness of less than seven. We have included in the end 4,429 patients, all reproductive ages included, BMI is all included, with euploid embryos, all single um, euploid single embryo transfers with a morphological normal uterus. So the results are quite well surprising for us, and we are happy that we kind of found them. Uh, because there is a um, chance for good hope. So after we had transferred the first euclidemic transfer, we've seen that about 70% have implanted. So that's quite uh, corresponds to the data that we have and I showed before. So of those who did not implant, some dropped out, which is quite normal to uh, just say an infertile population. And for those who had still remaining embryos, and those who did a new ART, we have transferred a second euploid embryo transfer embryo. And for those, we have seen that 60% of them had um, um, just a barely decreased uh, percentage of implantation of 60%. So this clearly indicates that the failed implantation following the first euploid embryo transfer does not select out women with problems of receptivity. And you can see that when we went to those who did not implant, we had again dropouts and still we had patients with remaining embryos, but we had all other patients that had to have a new IVF cycle to get embryos. And when we transfer the third embryo transfer, uh, euploid embryo uh, uh, we have transferred, we have seen that the implantation rates were similar to those after the second one of 60%. So, when we saw this, we kind of th thought that probably that the first embryo transfer has a higher chance of implantation due to the, prob the probability of morphological selection, uh, and probably we'll discuss that about studies that have shown that. So even with all this, we have 
uh, reported in the end a live birth of 64% after the first UPT transfer, 54% after the second one, and 54% after the third one. So when we did the, the cumulative implantation rate in live birth, we have seen that after three successive frozen UPT single embryo transfer, we have achieved the 95.2% of implantation rate, which is quite surprising. And also when we looked at um, uh, cumulative live births, we have seen that actually uh, we have 92.6% of cumulative live birth after three successive uh, Euclid single member transfer. So uh, this was quite surprising for us. Uh, when we look at miscarriages, we have seen that even though uh, the miscarriage rate was uh, observed uh, after a positive fetal heart cardiac activity was 7.2% 7 after the first single member transfer, 8.8% after the second one, and 12.7% after the third, uh, respectively, uh, as you see in the, in the image. When we compare the miscarriage rate resulted, uh, no, significant, no, sin no significant difference was observed according to our logistic regression adjusted for age. So, we report now with our data that women who failed to implant following uh, a course of, of single frozen UPED uh, ember transfer do not have a marked increased incidence of failing again to implant in a second, second and third uh, ember transfer. So we know, now know that our study reports uh, rate of recurrent implantation failure following three successive uh, UPED ember transfers with an incidence of less than 5%. And this is why. Um, we kind of um, think that the origin of uh, of true the endometrial origin of true uh, recurrent implantation failure when UPEG embryos are transferred is very low when we are talking about a morphological normal uterus. So certainly we have the limitation of our retrospective study, and um, another potential limitation of the study could be represented by the fact that some successive uh, Ember transfer came from different ART cycles, but we still have a very large uh, uh, cohort, and it's a very extensive nature. And when we regarding the um, second, the second limitation, when we calculate the implantation rate of the two subgroups after the second uh, Ember transfer, we notice similar results of 59 for those using remaining embryos and 61 respectively for those using embryos issued from new ART cycles. Furthermore. Uh, we can say that this is our this is the largest study reported of sequentially frozen UPEG single ember transfer, and I think that with all the weaknesses, uh, still uh, is has very strong data, which uh, we think that this can reliably call into question the role of the uterine factors in recurrent implantation failure. So, as conclusion, our finding. Um, after performing three successive frozen UPEL single ember transfer, indicate that endometrial causes of recurrent implantation failure are rare. This therefore questions the efficacy of endometrial receptivity tests. Uh, in patients with the ability to have UPEL embryo, a blastocyst, 95.2% could achieve clinical pregnancy after three frozen UPEL uh, single ember transfer, and 92% achieve live birth. And implantation rates decline minimally with increasing transfers. And I think, and we think, uh, that additional UPLED Ember transfer could offer hope for a better outcome. Thank you for your attention. I think this is truly amazing. I mean, uh, women who have uh, UPLED blastocysts 
to become pregnant. This does not select out women who have lower chances the next time around. And this was the base of the discussion. It's uh, just amazing. I know that uh, many of you have discussed and have questions. Uh, it's a European uh, US drone club, lunch for some, dinner for others. And so I will leave uh, the mic to Kurt to present the discussion uh, of this paper. Thank you, thank you, Paul. This was a great presentation. Thank you. So that's wonderful for as a background. So as always in these journal clubs, it's wonderful to hear from the author, but we hopefully have lots of questions. I'm already getting some from the audience and please those that are listening, uh, log on and uh, ask your questions and uh, I will get them to the authors. But first let's start with uh, Danilio, um, who is uh, the science and research manager at uh, General Life IVF centers. And uh, we've, uh, we welcome his expertise and his uh, take on the paper. So you get first crack at uh, the questions here. So discuss away. First of all, I want to thank you all for the invitation. It's I mean, a great honor for me to be here. And Paul, there was a very nice paper, very nice presentation. Uh, I also went through obviously the manuscript. And there was something that was really interesting that kept my attention when you say in the introduction already that there is a yet no universally accepted definition of, of RIF. You know, also by looking at the literature and a survey that we recently conducted uh, in the special interest group of the ASHRAE implantation and early pregnancy, of which I'm part, we noticed that overall in the world there is a huge variability in the threshold of uh, maternal age to define RIF, the number of transfers, the stage of the embryos, and the definition also of good quality embryo uh, when it comes to uh, understanding what a RIF patient is. Now, my question to you all is, which aspect do you, do you think we should consider the most relevant when it comes to a proper definition of RIF? And what are, in your, according to your opinion, uh, the the limitation related to the prevalence of RIF, the, of the current definition that we use? So I think that um, uh, one of the problems that uh, definition of RIF encounters is the fact that we deal with uh, ages that are very different. And I think that when we are talking about a patient in front of, we are talking about patients, we have to imagine that age is more important it's also important also for the diploidy, but it's also important for synchrony. So I think that uh, when we are talking about recurrent implantation failure, we have to uh, take notice of the age of the person because um, we all know today that some patients and the older they get, the older, the, the lower, the, the slower their embryos are, which can cause directly desynchrony with the, uh, with the embryo and the endometrium. So age, I think it's a very important cofactor and it, shall, it has to be taken into account whenever we, we talk about recurrent implantation failure, because I think that this study have shown that if we put things in line, meaning that we have a perfect endometrium and we have a good embryo, the chances of success are very high. And I think this situation is not encountered in many, uh, everywhere. Like it, it can differ from place to place. And I think that from our results, I think that when we talk about record implementation failure, it's very. Mm. 
materials. I have a, I Richard, have a what, question. What do you think? I have a question for Richard. And uh, really, uh, when PGTA became available, and you've been one of the champions in doing this, it led to several things. One of them is to actually use frozen embryo transfer, and we might say something about this. Uh, and I know that Mika has done the study, and I will come back to that. But also, it led to through the transfers of good embryos, genetically normal. And we thought intuitively that it would also lead to select out women who have an initial problem. And the surprise is, we don't find those, do we? Well, we certainly would say that there are very few. Um, I don't think you can say that there are none. Um, yeah. But we went back and looked even at fourth transfers after the study was done. We don't have an enormous number. That was beyond just the population in the study because we've accumulated a few more over time. Uh, and the implant, the sustained implant, the delivery rate uh, was 56%. And so now with four euploids, the chance of not delivering uh, is between three and 4%. Uh, and so there probably are a few patients in that three to 4% that, that have recurrent implantation failure. Uh, but this concept that it's widespread and that we need to screen everyone in advance for a variety of different things, I think this uh, seriously calls that into question. Even in that three to 4%, we don't know they're endometrial. They could still have an embryonic problem uh, as well. So uh, the good news is, is that the vast majority of our patients can deliver. Uh, and the tough news for us as investigators, is we're still searching for a good way to find that RIF group. Let me jump in just for a second, Dom. There are a couple of questions that are kind of clarifying before we can go on to the study. They all have the same theme. I just want to confirm with the authors that there was nothing done to these patients between their second and third transfer. In other words, explicitly, nobody had endometrial receptivity testing. No one had a change in the way they prepared. All the transfers were done the same way. Um, I think the answer to that is all yes, but, but uh, people are asking, and I just want to clarify that. Yeah, so I certified that all the transfers were done in the clinic by the team of the clinic. KPI is tested for less than 3% difference between them, and no additional tests were performed or receptivity tests were performed. And, and all of these were, were frozen, I'm sorry, were medicated cycles. None of them were natural cycles. Exactly. Okay. Um, I want to go on to let uh, Zev Williams ask a few questions. Zev is the, the Wendy Havens Associate Professor in Women's Health and the Chief of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at Columbia University. Zev, thank you very much for taking the time to review this paper and adding your take on it as well. Oh, really, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure and honor to be here and, and to discuss this with you. Uh, Dr. Bertea and Dr. Scott, uh, first of all, thank you as well for, for presenting and sharing this work. I think this is really one of those critical papers that's going to be widely cited and has already started to be cited when we counsel patients. Um, and I think it's got some tremendous strengths in terms of what it does. And what it does really well is give us a, you know, when we're talking to patients, a ballpark, a guideline to really define the prevalence in a very well-controlled environment. I think that kind of information is really powerful to let patients know that if they've had a failed implantation rate, you're looking at roughly that same sort of 60% over and over again. I think that's a great strength um, to the paper. And I think that's, again, it's one of those, this is gonna be one of those papers that gets cited over and over again. And uh, thank you very much for sharing that work. I think it's kind of the whole area of, what well, I think the challenge is that the paper sort of ends where recurrent implantation failure begins. 
And so it sort of gives us a good sense of the prevalence. But in terms of answering the questions, first of all, does this condition exist? And Dr. Scott sort of alluded to that. You know, one of the ways we sort of talk about it is like, there's no such thing as, you know, when it comes to flipping a coin, there's not like recurrent heads or recurrent tail. If you flip enough coins, you will get some that get heads five times in a row. But the next time you flip that group of coins, you're back to 50-50 ratio. And I think the, the challenge we all have is, is that what we're seeing here? Is it that you're sort of left at 60% and so some people will be very unfortunate and just keep being on the wrong end of that 60-40 split? Um, and so, yes, some people will have three failed, failed transfers and then four. Or at some point, will you start to really, as Dr. Scott pointed out, enrich for those who really have the condition? I think it's, it's very analogous, I think, to recurrent pregnancy loss as well in that sense, that after one loss, most people will go on to do very well. The challenge is trying to being able to identify early on. You know, the person who has one loss and the person who has 10 losses both started off with one loss. And so is there a way to determine which group someone would be on earlier, or is it really a very, very narrow group of people who may have this a true entity of recurrent implantation failure? It might be even lower than the 5% that we're seeing here. One, one question I wanted to follow up with you, um, Paul, was just, you had mentioned the, the impact of age. Um, I had thought that in your study, those who had success after their first transfer and those who had failed three transfers there was no difference in age no no that's correct no okay that's correct, that's correct. so me, age i was just going to ask the so, general question so does age I, I, matter in terms of success yeah that's, a that's my question i think that our study as you uh, we mentioned before was very controlled and the uh, uh setup like frozen embryo transfer, the same preparation, same team, same platforms of PGTA. I think that that really selected out only those who really had a problem because age can impact the synchrony, as we mentioned before. Age can impact euploidy. But in the end, when you have euploid embryos, uh, we see that they have the same implantation rate. If I could just uh, extend that comment a little bit, um, what we what we see is what we have typically seen and reported in the past, which is certainly past the age of 42. Uh, there are very small declines in your 30s, uh, but almost negligible. But after 42, even with euploids, it drops off pretty quickly. I think that the key for this study, um, and we think that's still embryonic, by the way, uh, but in this study, the, the implantation rates for 43 and 44-year-olds, while being somewhat lower, were the same in the first, second, and third transfer. So again, it's not that they were more prone to recurrent implantation failure. They just still own the limit, which comes with being 44 or 45, uh, which is not overcome, uh, which is not overcome by doing aneuploidy uh, um, screening. There's more to, to reproductive aging than that. Uh, so sure, you can have recurrent implantation failure because of, of aging, probably not endometrial, um, but there would still be some component. It's just not enriched over time. Still random variation. Um, and so uh, it was interesting. Yeah, Danilo? Yeah, I, I had a question. Uh, I've noticed that you included all BMIs. I mean, we, you didn't exclude patients because they were obese. Uh, did you notice any reduction in the implantation rate of euploid embryos when it comes to higher BMIs? Because I'm aware of at least one paper by Cozzolino published this year in fertility and sterility 
who notice a higher miscarriage rate also when you transfer euploid embryos in obese women? So uh, in our study, BMI didn't have an impact on the outcomes, but uh, I think Dr. Scott recently published a, a paper on that, uh, uh, following also body fat and proportion of that and, and BMI. But in our study, we did not uh, notice any uh, difference in implantations. Sure, we did a 2,000 patient, uh, Julia Kim from our group did a 2,000 patient prospective study where we not only looked at BMI, but also percent and distribution of body fat. And it's amazingly not predictive of outcome. We, we really thought it would be, and we thought maybe that further subdividing the groups would provide further uh, insight in how to counsel patients. And the reality is, is it's just not very predictive uh, of clinical outcome. So we did measure it and control for it here, but I'm not sure it's a major factor. I wanted to, to, add, to add a comment that possibly <clears throat> PGTA has provided an unexpected benefit by using frozen embryos. And for example, in the case of endometriosis, there were numerous reports that the receptivity was altered uh, in the fresh cycle, uh, as well as just in doing biopsies and all kinds of parameters were altered in endometriosis. But when you have ovarian suppression with either the agonist or the antagonist, uh, this alteration go away. Now we have the chance to have with us Mika, and Mika just published, it was part of a group that published an article on implantation rates in uh, frozen euploid blastocysts of women with endometriosis. And there were no differences between endometriosis and control. Maybe because of a benefit of the frozen embryo transfer. What do you think, Mika? Yeah, I, I think that's very possibly that you're right, Dom. Uh, the study was by Lauren Bishop looking at uh, surgically proven patients with endometriosis compared to controls uh, that had male factor or were doing PGT for PGTM. And there was no difference in the implantation rate within those euploid embryo transfers. And uh, Caroline Juno from Richard's group has also shown in the past that there's no difference in aneuploidy in patients with endometriosis. So uh, perhaps showing both to your point that there's when they're downregulated in a frozen transfer, uh, we're perhaps ameliorating that effect of endometriosis. And, and we certainly don't see that there's an effect on aneuploidy. I did want to just share an audience question. So one of the things I think all of us um, wanted to know was how we define uh, recurrent implantation failure. And so we asked our audience and you can see that uh, the audience really is split on how we clinically define this. And I think that's because the research is split and because uh, we don't really have guidance from our societies on how we should define this. So I'm just curious from Richard and Paul and the other experts on this call, when should we start uh, looking at other things uh, past just the embryo when we've had multiple euploid embryo transfer failures? How should we define this? And, and do we need a definition from ASRM or another group? So I, 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 I certainly think that uh, a definition would be uh, extremely important. But as Danilo said, uh, even in ASHRAE group, it, the, the opinions are very divided. And I think that we are very far away from having one. Yeah. Um, and given that uh, <laughs> all over the world, they, they, they have different techniques and they, they different protocols. And it will, very, it will be very difficult to, uh, in, like to impose a definition on those procedures because just consider fresh and frozen. Uh, 
PGTA, non-PGTA. I mean, it's it's highly complex and relative. I think that uh, on concerning the investigations, I think that we should uh, do uh, uh, validated uh, investigations for clinical use to all our patients from the beginning. But for those um, those uh, investigation or tests that are not yet clinically validated, I'm not sure whether we should think about them. Oh, considering that those patients who really have a record implantation failure, it's a really small population, and possibly they have real problems of age or ovarian reserve. If I may hmm. enter in the, in, the, in the conversation. I'm aware of, of a paper published recently by Kut and colleagues. Uh, they noticed that if you apply the current definition of RIF to some patients, in the follow-up, wow. looking at the, these patients for the three up to five years follow-up after the diagnosis of RIF, let's say, 50% of them were able to conceive, in some cases, even spontaneously. So in other terms, there might be the possibility that the current definition that we use raises the risk of false positive diagnosis of RIF. That's something, in my view, it's extremely important. And again, if you look at the literature, if you're able to transfer, looking at cumulative data of pregnancy, up to 20 cleaver stage embryos, 10 blastocysts, or you showed in your paper, free euploid blastocysts, even more than 90% of the patients are able to conceive. So my question is, is it just a matter of keep trying? And how can we uh, avoid patient dropout? Certainly, papers like this are extremely important because of counseling. So we can counsel them that it's just a matter of keep trying. But do you think that the psychological support or something like that might be important to help our patients, you know, keep trying and looking for the euploid blasters they will implant? Well, I, I think that that's crucial because, uh, I mean, and I, I hope that our results will bring this kind of hope to our patients and to physicians because... Uh, I think patients, they of course, they are exhausted, and if they they do incredible amount of tests and so forth, also their um, optimism goes away with them because uh, the most of the time they don't find much, and uh, they, they they are pushed away from maybe the main important thing, which is the embryo in this case. So I think counseling them and explaining uh, everything to them and um, trying to keep them on, on a track to obtain their objective is very important. I think it's I don't worth, know what you think. Uh, I apologize, Paul. Um, I think it's worth noting that um, while we, we had significant dropout after the first and the second transfer, some of those people were out of embryos and elected not to cycle again. Uh, some, of course, were people who just gave up because that, that's always a problem uh, in our from our poor patients who put up with so much. Uh, our group has reacted to this by telling patients um, that you need three euploid embryos um, to really to get a good crack at this, and that uh, almost two-thirds will deliver after the first one, uh, and uh, almost 95% will deliver within three. And I think if we create that expectation with that big number from the beginning, patients uh, go into it sort of with uh, Short-term pessimism, it might not be the first transfer, but long-term optimism, and it helps keep them in care. Plus, uh, two-thirds of the patients, a little more, have enough embryos even from one retrieval, enough euploids from one retrieval to get uh, to get to three transfers. Um, 
whether that will become four or not in the future, uh, we need more data. Uh, but some, you know, which maybe gets you to 96 or 7 percent um, will deliver. So I think if you if if you kind of set their eyes on the horizon at the beginning, uh, that's part of that counseling you were mentioning, uh, Danielle, which I agree with completely. Um, it helps them get through those intermittent random failures that appear to be random, and hopefully to a good outcome. If I may, I think Paul, one point you brought up, which is really worth emphasizing, is the use of let's say not clinically validated tests. And where your paper will be coming very useful is that people, and by people I mean patients and, and also providers, often view these tests as either helpful or neutral. Um, but you've shown, you know, after two failed transfers, you're looking at roughly a 60% success rate the next time around. Which means if you use one of these interventions and it's actually harmful, let's say it reduces the implantation rate to 50%, you'll still have half the patients thinking it helped them, when in fact it was lowering their chances. So I think having these numbers, this is not to support or condone, you know, or, or diminish these tests, just to, to emphasize the fact that with a lot of the interventions that we do, when you have a sizable success rate with no intervention, you want to also be careful that what you're doing, even if you have patients who succeed, that you're not diminishing the number who will be successful. Yeah, if I could pick up on that just for a second, there's a lovely um, reflection on this article that will be published, Fertility and Sterility, by Kate Scheuer, that picks up on the point that Zev just had. And I just want to bring it to attention that these adjuvants or add-ons can, can look to, can appear much better than they are because of our desire to recognize a pattern. If 60% of people are going to get pregnant on the next transfer and you added something onto it, you're going to believe that that was the reason that they got pregnant. And most of these adjuvants are not proven and may be harmful. And that's a epidemiologic reason why people grasp at this, saying the test must be good, and we're having so much trouble figuring out whether it actually works or not. And that can include add-ons, endometrial receptivity tests, and they can be expensive and they could be problematic. So I'm sorry, Dom, you were about to pick up on something, please. Yeah, I was, I was just uh, wishing that uh, in terms of methodology of uh, assessing uh, intervention that we may make, that uh, Richard might actually just remind us what a non-intervention study trial is, which would apply also for those uh, endometrial uh, receptivity assays. Uh, our, uh, we recently published a, a non intervention trial, basically a non-selection trial for PGT, to, because people had expressed a legitimate concern that if we were over-diagnosing abnormal with PGT, that, that we might be actually harming patients by discarding competent embryos. And we demonstrated uh, that that's not the case, uh, at least with one assay, and I believe with many assays. So um, that that's thing one. I think it goes back to speaking to when, whenever you do any kind of diagnostic validation, you need to look at the predicted value of the test positive and negative, in a, in a non-selected non way to see whether or not it truly prognosticates outcome. And that's, that step has been skipped for so many of the diagnostics in our field, many, not just the uh, endometrial type tests, although they are, um, they are really not as, as well validated. So they need to define this type of population or some other one that they think benefits. And then they need to really go and, and, and demonstrate the predictive value of this, not just because someone had one failed cycle, but because in the subsequent cycle, which comes after the diagnostic was done to show that it still prognosticates a difference in outcome, that would be enormously helpful, at least from our perspective, 
Uh, and I, I hope that uh, people will do that in the future. It's really just supporting what Zev and Kurt said, which I thought was awesome. Well, I, I, um, can I, can I ask one other question um, that I think will be helpful with counseling patients? Um, in your study, there was a pretty wide range. You, you sort of gave estrogen until you reached a minimum threshold of seven millimeters. Um, patients who couldn't reach that were excluded, and I think we agree that you know there is a role for that. Um, and the range of time it took to reach that seven millimeters ranged from 12 days to 25 days. And patients often will ask, "Does that mean my chances are taking longer than normal? Does that diminish my chances?" Prior literature has not suggested that it's harmful, and I'm wondering if you looked at that and if, if that sort of supports that kind of counseling, if your data supports that counseling. Well, uh, we, I mean, from what, as I said before, uh, there was no difference uh, for those who had 12 to 25. And I think that this also goes hand in hand with the data that we recently showed on uh, the exposure to progesterone, uh, to estrogen should be safe up to 38 days in euploid embryos. Even though there are some studies, European studies, uh, with non-tested, uh, non-genetic tested embryos that show the, the exact opposite. Uh, recent studies and, and have shown that actually uh, estrogen is safe up to 38 days. So in our study, there's no, no, there was no difference between those who had less or more days of, of oral uh, estrogen. I, I have another curiosity. Were all the patients included in your study naive or did they already have some experience of FIF previously? I mean, did they already went from... So, so, you know, from what they said to the clinic, they were naive. So we, from what we know, they didn't, they didn't do cycles outside the clinic, but so you never know that you, 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 I mean, from the uh, interrogation of the patient, you believe what they are saying, you know, like, you know, cannot really be 100% sure, but yeah. Um, yeah. No, because something that we have noticed in our own experience is that uh, when the patient has some experience of implantation failures, let's say more than three, uh, much because of the quality of the embryo and the day of full blastulation, if they had more yeah. than three previous implantation failures, we have noticed uh, in our in our you know in our case a, a reduction in terms of live birth. So, is it plausible, in in your opinion, according to your opinion, that? Maybe not that much, but there might be some influence of endometrial receptivity when it comes to euploid embryo transfer with poor prognosis patients that already had some, you know, adverse event. Well, it depends. We are talking in a fresh frozen, uh, fresh. I think that the frozen can provide help uh, and synchrony uh, because outcome or poor uh, oocytes or could have uh, a, a slow development of the embryo and thus think that if we uh, talk about transfer as in the cases of endometriosis and also in the case of maybe ob obesity uh, it can provide some help and align the endometrium with the uh, uh, obtained embryo but it's very if I could add one brief comment uh, to, to answer Dino's question. Our data really only went through three, 
Uh, and that's really all we have sufficient uh, uh, insight on to comment on. However, uh, we would agree that there must be someone out there with impaired receptivity that's not evident just by endometrial thickness and pattern. Um, so I suspect that there's a group out there, but what I uh, um, and and they're probably hiding in that last group. Like I said, now we're through four and we're still not seeing them because it hasn't dropped off. Uh, but there but there probably are out there and we don't uh, know exactly where they're coming from. Um, and we just still need to seek better ways to find them. But I, I would certainly not say these data can say that no one has impaired receptivity. That's That would be too strong, and we would not want to imply that. I think this uh, study also supports very strongly the replacement regimen that has been used for the frozen embryo transfer. There are now lots of discussion as to whether you want to use different approaches, natural cycle, or uh, slightly stimulated cycles for X or Y reasons. But here, the simple uh, estradiol and injectable progesterone uh, doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to be able to do any better than that. You want to comment, uh, Richard? We have looked, uh, I think, in three different studies, internal studies, over the years at uh, what we call synthetic cycles, estrogen replacement, progesterone replacement versus natural. Um, and we continue to find really no difference. And I mean, it's just shockingly how well aligned they are. Uh, you can always argue a single patient is different than a population, but uh, the reality is we find no advantage. And that means you can use a natural cycle if, if you were really inclined, uh, but uh, our patients uh, never seem to ovulate on the day they want their transfer, and they always want to negotiate a compromise. And uh, it is highly problematic for us in terms of logistics uh, on their part, not, not on our part. So we really prefer uh, replacement cycles and feel that the outcomes are uh, just as good, at a minimum, just as good. Zeb, do you have further thoughts? Well, I, I, I think one of the things I, I want to just Two points. One, we were talking about sort of the definition of recurrent implantation failure. And I think it's important to keep in mind when we come up with a definition, what type of a definition we want. You know, if it's descriptive, then by definition, two failures is repetitive. And that's recurrent implantation failure. If we want a definition that's functional, it would sort of be, okay, after how many losses are we worried that we need to start doing a workup? And that's still different from sort of a biological difference which is sort of saying after how many losses have we pinpointed that now we're in the group that's selecting out for something. So I think you're going to get very wide skews of the definition because there's different ways of, of coming up with the criteria for how we define it. Is it just based on the language? Is it based on when we would recommend doing some sort of an evaluation? And, you know, I, I think it, it does beg the question of what sort of evaluation tools do we have? And the last is, at what point are we actually saying, no, this defines someone who has a biological impairment, it's not just a matter of chance. So I think that I just want to add into the discussion. And the last thing is, when we're talking about the factors, like it's true, we, we talk about the uterus, we talk about the embryo, there are other factors, of course, that we're all aware of that play a role in it. And one of the ones I wanted to ask about is every once in a while, you will encounter a cervix or some other um, issue that makes it much more challenging, much more difficult. I don't know if you were able to pull aside, you know, there's the operator, the person who's doing the transfer, but there's also the environment, the cervix and other situations. Were you able to pull out those cases where the transfer itself may be more technically challenging and to see if 
there was a difference? We, uh, I'll, I'll take a crack at that. Uh, in this study, uh, we really had no one that, that, which is a big number to have no one. Uh, I want to confess that, but they really fell into the range where we had difficult transfers. So we had to use a stylet or do something else manipulative. However, we have those patients too. Absolutely guilty as charged. And uh, anytime we have something where we have to change our basic approach to transfer, our outcomes diminish. So at least in our hands, if we can't get this done, we can go slow and take our time. And maybe it's a couple of three passes, but we can't get it done using the basic technique that we probably all use, um, then our outcomes are impaired. So that certainly could be a cause. And I would hope people would do something after one bad transfer uh, on that one and not wait for multiple ones. So our audience is very pragmatic. They're, they're, the questions we're receiving are basically in three categories. Uh, one, I'm just going to dismiss um, off the top. No, this paper has not defined a new definition for recurrent implantation failure at three transfers. So th th that's as far as the paper could go, um, but uh, it, it is not making a new definition, and I appreciate the comments of other people wanting a definition. The, the second group of questions is, okay, I've reached three embryos that, I, that have, um, I've transferred three normal embryos and the patient still isn't pregnant and people are very much wanting to know what I do after that. So I think that is a good discussion point that I'll let you guys banter around. Uh, I'm not sure it's directly related to the paper, but I would certainly love your, your, your suggestions and skills. Go ahead. Who first? Oh. Uh, first, uh, go, go, Paul, go ahead and I'll, I'll answer as well. So I think that um, maybe in this group, maybe you can have, you can experience uh, chronic endometritis and you have several papers showing that this can impact the, it can be responsible for uh, recurrent implantation failure and maybe do a biopsy with CD138 uh, or uh, have a treatment with antibiotic. And, and this could be a reasonable uh, attitude for treating that. But I think that um, also you can talk about hysteroscopies and to find new uh, things that maybe were, uh, were uh, um, completely uh, outlooked before. But in the end, I think that uh, one way to go is that if you believe you can obtain euploid embryos, uh, that's, the, that's the plan to do, even though you have to keep an eye on all the possible cofactors and pathologies that could impact implantation, like hydrosalpinxis and, and chronic endometritis and, and so forth. Richard? I think that's, uh, those, are great, those are great insights, Paul. Uh, you know, we, we look for everything. We're not different than anyone else in there. We're always uh, desperate to find out what to do when, we're, when our patients are failing and, and it's not, there's no obvious uh, pathology to explain that. Um, we have we have not been impressed um, with an exclamation point after that uh, with the endometrial timing assays. At least in our hands, they've not been prognostic. Uh, the microbiome. We wrote one of the original papers, and we're doing a very large, a very large prospective study now. But again, it really has not been prognostic um, in in our hands uh, to date. Um, beyond that, uh, certainly. Uh, uh, Nola Harahi from our group is doing a, a big, big study on uh, chronic endometritis now, and, and we're awaiting those results. I could go through all the different studies that we're doing, and you guys are many also probably doing similar things. Uh, but the frustrating answer is that we do not really have anything yet, or I can say there's strong evidence that it changes the outcome. 
So I certainly think you make sure the cavity is normal. I, I think that's fair. Um, but beyond that, I think all of these other adjuncts um, and other studies that we do are uh, not really um, well studied and well validated and uh, you're kind of using them at your own risk because of, uh, again, you might be, you know, there's a potential to be misleading and misguiding uh, and we don't want to do that. So I don't have a good direction for these patients. Uh, I, I think there's no clear answer, not yet anyway. Micah, Don? You want to make comments on how, what is the incidence of PGTA that you do in your clinic? About uh, 70%. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought it was free. Go ahead, Don. In our sorry. clinic, we are about 80% of application of PGT. So I, I would say, well, we have mean maternal age who they are 39 years old. So, you know, pretty advanced maternal age. So it's very common. But starting from the age of 35, we are, you know, mm, suggesting PGT to all patients and still informing about the risk of aneuploidies also to women younger than 35. Because, I mean, if we if we think of PGT as a diagnostic procedure, well, anyone would uh, would go through PGT as they go through amniocentesis once they conceive. So it's just a matter of having a, a technique that is enough uh, predictive in terms of positive and negative predictive values. And what Dr. Scott showed with the TXP paper published in Fertility and Strategy this year, it's saying us that it's a very well-validated technique as soon as we as soon as we exclude the report of putative mosaic or, or segmental aneurysm. That's the point. I, I might make a, a personal comment here. I mean, uh, you all see my gray hair, so I've been around for quite a while. And uh, there were so many years that we spent thinking that the animation might play a very important role uh, and that assessing that was crucial. And now it seems to have gone a full circle. And I've seen this study being conducted and looked at the results. And uh, it's just amazing. It's just amazing that uh, the embryo actually uh, is responsible for, for everything. We still have to unveil why some euploid embryos don't implant. We don't know that. Uh, I don't know whether anyone wants to make a comment on possible causes for Unemployed embryos not implanting. Richard, boy, that was a curveball. Uh, that you know, I think it's the, the for us anyway. We think that's the the greatest single question confronting uh, clinical reproductive endocrine today. Uh, we still think it's principally in the in the embryo. We think it's not mitochondrial density, but it, we we have some evidence to say that it's mitochondrial function uh, and and uh, mitophagy and and other uh, potential. Uh, abnormalities there. Uh, and I think there's just a lot of work to be done. But right now, I do not believe we have anything we can definitively say uh, alters uh, embryonic competence beyond the beyond aneuploidy. Is that, do you want to make a, a comment? I mean, you came up with uh, interesting questions on what we got with the uh, transfers of euploid embryos and the success rate and the vanishing role of the endometrium, and so, so to speak, through this study? I'm sorry, were you calling on me? I didn't hear the, the yeah. first part. Uh, I meant, do you want to make some more comments on the fact that uh, the endometrium appears to be receptive most of the time 
And this is quite a surprise from what we were believing before. And all of this through euploid uh, embryo transfer and the, uh, also, I believe, the frozen embryo transfer. Well, what we implantation is occurring 60% of the time. Yeah. Whether that's because the embryo is competent that time and the, the endometrium always is, or sometimes things are more aligned the way they're supposed to be and other times they're not, and it varies from cycle to cycle. I don't think, it's not a criticism of the study. The intent of the study was not to delve into the cause, the mechanism, but it was to describe a phenomenon that we're seeing. So I don't think we have the data to answer the question that you're addressing. Um, we're seeing that the implantation is occurring 60% of the time. When you repeat it, it seems to be quite consistent like that. Um, but what's happening in that other 40% is really a big question. And it doesn't necessarily mean the reason an embryo didn't implant one cycle is the same reason implantation wasn't occurring the next. Um, it, 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 I, I think there's a lot of possible explanations, and I think it's helpful for us not to presume the answer. Yeah, what, what the study has shown is failing to implant a euclid embryo does not select out women whose chances are less. Correct. But it doesn't say why they're failing yeah. to implant. Right. It's not. It was a great work that Tom, it was fantastic that he could do this uh, at Rich's place. And I think the accomplishment and the results are... Oh, this is this is great. And it's one of those studies that immediately becomes very clinically helpful um, in talking to patients. I mean, as recently as yesterday. So thank you. <laughs> so we have we a have a great time having this journal club. And or not, there is lots of competition because we cannot go to any meetings, so everything is online. But it's a great it's a great pleasure to share that and to share it with uh, the Europeans and the Americans. The Americans are having lunch. Uh, we're having uh, dinner, and uh, for those for whom uh, the uh, holiday starts tonight, uh, happy holiday, and thanks again for joining this, John. Thanks, Kurt, for organizing all this, and Mika, uh, thanks to all of you. Thank you. Again, this is a, a wonderful event. I thank you for the time. We have a minute or two that we can collect our thoughts. Um, it's, it's really impressive to get a study like this that I think is going to immediately impact the way we think about things. And what I heard here is that um, the embryo certainly is driving the majority of reasons a woman gets pregnant, but still we don't understand why they don't get pregnant 30 or 40 percent of the time with a normal embryo. But what this study is telling us is it's that whatever that issue is, it does not seem to be specific to women. It seems to be random or common among women and across cycles. So um, we have to figure out what that is. So I don't want to say we should stop using all science and say it's, we don't have to look at the endometrium. We do. We just don't have the right tests at the moment. Um, why don't we go around? Does anyone have some final words just to say? Uh, again, thank you very much. But uh, um, why don't I start uh, Danilo from his final comments, and then we'll go to Zev and Richard and Paul. No, I, I want just to conclude that if we think that such a thing like an RIF problem exists, maybe the future avant-garde of genomics will help us, you know, outlining a population that might have some, some issue with it. The problem, I think, in studies like these are telling us that there is a problem will be to define in which patients study the genome to an underlying RIF. 
But I think that, you know, there is a lot to study in our field, luckily or unluckily, depending whether you're a basic scientist or clinician, but definitely we're looking forward to it. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I want to echo that. I, I think what will be exciting would be if we have a journal club like this in the 10 years from now, and instead of it being 60%, 60%, 60%, it's 80%, 80%, uh, 80%. I think that's a great challenge for our field. It's probably not one factor. It's probably multiple factors, and we just sort of have to chip away at that 40% number. But look forward to continuing to see those numbers improve from, you know, 4% 4, 4 days up to continuing to improve numbers. However, Zeno, if it were to become 100%, we might not be there to talk about it anymore. <laughs> That's a good problem to have. Yeah. Richard and Paul, wonderful paper. Leave us with some of your thoughts. Well, um, actually, I'm just extremely curious to find out what happens after four successive people attempt the transfer. <laughs> so uh, I hope that... Um, Someone will find the, I mean, I hope maybe Richard or someone finds the uh, resources to provide that answer because I think we really know, really need that. And um, uh, I think that in order to provide the best uh, definition for REF, it's to know what happens after that fourth euploid uh, embryo transfer. So I Dominic to Richard uh, for uh, helping me uh, with this uh, project. Because for me, it was uh, mind-blowing. And I think that this will really change the way I will probably uh, practice uh, infertility uh, in the next future. So thank you. Thanks, Paul, for this great work. Thanks, uh, Richard, for being a mentor. And thanks, Kurt and Mika, for setting up this uh, journal club. Thank you Richard, all. Richard, we cut you off. Do you want to close us out with any final thoughts? No, I, I just wanted to read how much I appreciate that. I think this is an important paper that can be used for clinical counseling, but the, the, the insights that Danilo and Zev and, and Kurt provided about exploring the other causes and that this is just one more piece of this puzzle is really exciting. And I hope everybody will, will see that value and will continue to pursue it. So what wonderful insights. Thank you. Tom, thank you for organizing this this breakfast and dinner club. Um, I hope we, I will see you all at a future Journal Club Global with Fertility and Serility. Thank you for those that listened, put the questions in, my participants. Have a great day. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.